Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Today, our guest is Dr. Michael Weissman, who attended the medical school at the University of Chicago, completed his internship, residency, and fellowship in rheumatology at UCSD School of Medicine, and then performed two years of active military service as LCDR MC US Navy at Camp Pendleton, California. His academic and research interests involve genetic and environmental risk, epidemiology, treatment and outcome of chronic rheumatic diseases. He has published more than 500 peer-reviewed papers and edited 12 books on rheumatic diseases. He has recently retired from his prior appointment as Chief Division of Rheumatology, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, and is now a Distinguished Professor of Medicine Emeritus at David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, Professor of Medicine Emeritus, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, and Professor of Medicine Emeritus at UCSD School of Medicine. His current activities include editing the newest edition of the Rheumatology textbook, and he is the series editor of Rheumatic Diseases Clinics of North America, as well as an associate editor at Arthritis Care and Research. He has been honored, including Master American College of Rheumatology, Excellence in Research Mentoring from the ACR, Distinguished Service Award from the ACR, and being recently chosen as a master clinician by the publication, The Rheumatologist. He is currently far from retired and remains very active in the field of rheumatology, including permanent membership of the AMSC study section from the NIH and member arthritis advisory committee, US Food and Drug Administration. His current active appointment is adjunct professor of medicine in the division of rheumatology and immunology at Stanford University. Dr. Weissman, welcome to SpondyCast. We are gonna talk about enteropathic arthritis today. I appreciate you joining us. All right. So so before we get into enteropathic arthritis, and I also promised you in the green room, I wanna talk about some of the research you're you're heading up in a slightly different direction. Um, but tell me a little bit about your career, because you have made such a contribution to the, the community and the advancement of a lot of rheumatic diseases. Well, my career has been um, consistent. I've stayed in academics uh, at various institutions located in California, which is uh, the key, because it's my <laughs> You uh, love California. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's no other place as far as I can tell. And uh, we uh, lived in San Diego and and Los Angeles and uh, have a home up in Northern California. So I try and try and cover the state. So what inspired you into rheumatology? The fact that it was such an unknown field. So new. Yeah. uh, And and the people that I associated with didn't have a clue. And when my mentor showed up at UCSD. Um, he was a phenomenal person, very smart, very clever. And I said, that's, that's what I want to be. I want to be that person that is a go-to person for 
complicated stories and uh, complicated patients. So let me ask you this. You've had, I mean, you have done more than most of us do in multiple lifetimes. Uh, do you have a proudest moment of your career? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, it, I, I can't, I can't put my finger on it. That's fair. That's a fair point. You've done so many things. I just wondered if there was one standout thing that you, though greatness is the sum of many small things, just like anything else. Well, my family is my proudest moment, you know, with uh, three unbelievable kids and now six grandkids. It's a, uh, and they're all, you know, they're all on their own. They're all doing extremely well. Uh, that's, that's the best thing that, that could happen. Amazing. I also wonder, I like to add up how many people we touch in our careers. And I would love, I, I would love to do that math with you someday. So I won't keep us too long from the topic, but to get us started, can you explain what enteropathic arthritis is and how it differs from other forms of spondyloarthritis? It's a complicated question because there is probably more than one type of enteropathic arthritis. The, um, the story really begins historically uh, way back. Uh, and the, um, the problem took place in uh, early stages in the beginning of the, of the, the 20th century. When patients who had intestinal diseases showed up with arthritis and it wasn't clear what came first, it wasn't clear what the connection was. And most people that is in academia, and we're going back to the 20s and 30s now, said, well, this is just rheumatoid arthritis occurring in patients that had um, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or inflammatory or otherwise known as inflammatory bowel disease. And this was a huge controversy because you were taking two separate disease entities and saying, well, th this is just a mixture of the two. Well, what does it mean mixture of the two? Because it turns out that the arthritis occurred much more frequently in patients with inflammatory bowel disease than would be expected. And likewise, the colitis occurred much more frequently in patients with arthritis more than expected. So there was something that connected the two. And so there was this huge problem into the 30s, into the 40s, until, believe it or not, until the war. Oh. The war... The war, the big war, World War II. Yeah, tell us more. Well, and World War II changed a lot in rheumatology. For one thing, it created cortisone. Okay, and that's another story. If you have another half hour, we can go into that. I would love to someday, but yeah, let, let's. Okay, but we can't really do that. Um, so let's let's go. Let's take the story that I'm trying to tell forward. So during the war, when there was deprivation, deprivation in populations, 
these populations got enteric bacteria uh, and uh, and they they got very sick and following these enteric infections that occurred in concentration camps and in large groups of people that were confined to, to tight spaces, they, after their bout of dysentery, weeks later, they developed an inflammatory arthritis, amazingly, at a very high rate, something like five to 10% developed arthritis. And of those patients that developed arthritis, some of it lasted for you know a year or less, but some of it lasted forever, forever. And it created spinal disease that looked like ankylosing spondylitis. This was called enteric, this was the original definition of enteric arthritis. It was an infectious disease of the gut, of the gut, caused by an ugly bacteria like Salmonella or Shigella and developed in arthritis and developed cases of arthritis, some of which went away, but, but a number of these people, it did not go away. The enteric infection went away, treated with antibiotics and went away, but the arthritis remained and caused damage to the peripheral joints and primarily the spine. It used to be called Reiter's syndrome. Now we call it reactive arthritis. Uh, and this was the first form that was recognized as enteric arthritis. Now that's one story. Remember I told you two stories. Yeah. The second story is patients who have bona fide Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis on their own without any antecedent infection occurring, but they had a lot of gastrointestinal signs and symptoms. They also developed arthritis within patients, within their context of their Crohn's disease. And this was also called enteropathic arthritis because it, it seemed to occur in enteropathic patients, that is Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So you have these two lines of inquiry occurring at the same time. Now, it all came together after two events that took place, two events that took place. One was the discovery of HLA B27. Which just turned 50. Exactly. Well, it turns out that HLA B27 marked not all, and believe me, not all, but a great deal of patients with enteropathic arthritis and separated out from rheumatoid arthritis, which would everybody felt was occurring simultaneously with those conditions. Remember the story? You couldn't tell the difference. Well, you can tell the difference. And the other event that took place was the discovery of rheumatoid factor, which identified patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And that took place again after the war, not because of the war, but after the war it took place, you know, in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s. And rheumatoid factor identified patients with rheumatoid arthritis, but these patients with enteric arthritis didn't have rheumatoid factor. They didn't. So 
it was science of the lab in the laboratory that distinguished enteropathic arthritis from just rheumatoid arthritis occurring in patients with gut disease. Now, this is a long-winded explanation, but, but it, 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 did you understand, Jill? Yeah. Getting at it, it took it, it took events, science and observations to separate out these conditions called enteropathic arthritis. Yeah, and if you ask me, um, just in my limited non-medical um, research, I don't think we're to the end of the question yet, but we're gonna punt that down to the bottom because I, I think there's so much more exploration to be done on the link between what goes on in our guts and what's happening in our joints. I and know. yeah, I, it's becoming a really fascinating topic, I think, as we learn more about biomes, gut biomes and stuff. So let's talk a little bit about, that was a really good, I love the historical context, by the way, but let's talk a little bit about uh, signs and symptoms and the diagnosis of enteropathic and are there similar challenges and delays in the diagnosis journey? Uh, very much so, very much so. Um, enteropathic arthritis can actually occur before the signs and symptoms of the bowel disease occur. Okay? Hmm. They actually can be the initial features of enteropathic arthritis. I have seen patients, and I know of others, who present to rheumatologists and they have pain, stiffness, swelling in their joints that is transient, uh, that is, it comes and goes. Uh, it's associated with fever. Uh, sometimes it's associated with skin rashes. Uh, and they get diagnosed with lupus. It's not uncommon. And after years of this management for lupus, it turns out that they, their Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis will bloom or blossom and come out. Hmm. This, this is a real phenomenon. It does actually happen. Uh, and I've had several patients with this, and I know other rheumatologists will see patients like that who are essentially misdiagnosed as having lupus because they have all these systemic features. They'll have a fever and transient arthritis and skin rashes, and they're misdiagnosed as lupus. So that's one way the disease will manifest itself. And that's typically will occur mostly in juvenile onset disease. That is the younger the individual with it, the teenager, the more likely it is to look like lupus. And that's where the delay in diagnosis uh, typically will occur. And is... Now, the yeah. other side of it, is what about the patient that has Crohn's or ulcerative colitis? 
what happens to them? Do they get arthritis? Yes, they do. And it can occur at any time along the journey that they are having with their Crohn's or their ulcerative colitis. And it's hard to recognize. It's hard to recognize because the type of arthritis they get may in fact be out of proportion to the physical findings of arthritis. That is, it can affect the structures around the joints, tendons, ligaments, emphasis, uh, without showing actual swelling of the joint itself. And so they get a lot of pain, a lot of stiffness, a lot of aching, and it's not recognized as arthritis. And their Crohn's doctors don't recognize it often. Right. And that's where these delays take place. And that's one of the reasons why we did the study that you're going to ask me about later. So yeah, it's it it forms a uh, a type of a picture that we need further investigations about. A hundred percent. I I'm just I I want I just want to like think for a second or not think for a second, but like for all the people I've met in my own journey and what my own journey has been that have experienced this delayed a diagnosis or for decades feeling like your gut isn't right, but your joints hurt, but you don't have enough symptoms for somebody to diagnose you on either the gastro side or the rheumatological side. It's heartbreaking that we're still at this place, but I think we're, we're, I know we're making progress, but it's so, I just think of all those people. Um, so in terms of treatment, uh, are the treatment protocols the same? For, the the for largest time? problem is the diagnosis. Okay. Treatment is not the big issue. The big issue is making the correct diagnosis. Okay. So who, do we have any idea who generally recognizes and recognizes it as as enteropathic arthritis, or is it generally diagnosed by the rheumatologist? It's the gastroenterologists that take care of patients with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis are highly, highly focused on the gut. And, you know, for good reason, because these diseases can be uh, horrific in terms of the impact uh, on the whole patient uh, and uh, produce, um, you know, terrible things that, uh, that, you know, interfere with people's lives and quality of life. Uh, and the, there is, there is lesser attention paid to these transient episodes of joint complaints. Uh, for obvious reasons. And so the job is to get these patients to be seen by rheumatologists at a stage in which something can be done about their joint complaints. Um, and so 
what we try and do is we try and interact with the gastroenterologist as much as possible. Okay. And that was, as I say, one of the reasons why we, you know, why we did that observational study to be able to demonstrate that there's a higher frequency of these things than, uh, you know, than, than are appreciated. And I think the patients are more worried about their gut than they are about their joints. Uh, I can understand that. Yeah. And, and it probably all depends on what is the most limiting. Yes. I, uh, okay. So I want to, we're going to flip flop things. I know we had a plan, but uh, let's go to that. Can we go to the study? And then we'll come back to some of the other questions. Cause I, I think this recent study that you did with uh Dr. Jörg Ehrman on spondyloarthritis and IBD prevalence and their associations is really important. I, I loved hearing about it. Can you tell us a little bit about the study and what you set out to look for and why it's so significant? Well, uh, we, first of all, the, this data is not published yet. So, I can't really give you numbers and don't want to. Okay. Okay. Fair. I'll give you ideas. I'll give you most little more talk, things like that. And, and you know, so because, because I have to protect my colleagues because they, you know, this is confidential information. Okay. So, and the study itself. So I'll just go over some general, general things about it. Uh, that what we did is we, we queried patients directly that were being seen in the gastrointestinal clinics. And we queried them directly with questionnaires. And then we were able to review the charts of those patients and review the charts of those patients and discovered that only a minority of the complaints that the patient says were actually, remember this is by questionnaire, were actually documented in the medical record. Hmm. That's surprising. Okay. Um, and again, only a minority of these patients were actually seen by rheumatologists referred to them. And so we, and we also documented very nicely that a lot of these complaints were complaints of joint pain without objective evidence of arthritis which is what we as rheumatologists know are the cardinal features of enteropathic arthritis, which, which differentiates it from rheumatoid arthritis. This goes back to the history that I told you, is that in the early, earliest days, when the complaints were seen by the gastroenterologists, in the 30s and 40s, in these patients that had Crohn's and ulcerative, mostly ulcerative colitis, they 
they said, well, this looks different from rheumatoid arthritis. It looks different because rheumatoid arthritis, you know, stays in the joints and they're swollen and the joints can get damaged if you don't do anything about it. But in these cases, these patients did not have the swollen joints and did not have the subsequent damage because the features were transient, evanescent. They didn't stick. And so this confused them is that this isn't just rheumatoid arthritis superimposed upon a patient with ulcerative colitis. This is some kind of different arthritis. And what they also noticed in those early days was that the worse you had your ulcerative colitis, that is the flaring of it, also was associated with the flaring of, the, of these transient forms of arthritis. In other words, there was a connection between the two because it was recognized early, but not proven that the arthritis associated with inflammatory bowel disease was not the same as rheumatoid arthritis from a clinical standpoint. They were two divergent conditions which had different outcomes. And so that was, that was very important to make that distinction. And the other thing that was noted in those early days is that these transient forms of arthritis that occurred in the hands and wrists and feet, knees, other areas, would come and go in patients with ulcerative colitis when they flared. Or Crohn's, when Crohn's flared. But when Crohn's was treated or managed or stopped flaring, those joint complaints got better. So this was a breakthrough in understanding that maybe there's a connection between what is actually going on in the gut and what is actually going on in the joints. So was some of the... Now, let, let me interrupt you. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to add another piece to the story. Once HLA-B27 was discovered, and that was discovered many years later in 1973, okay, 50 years ago, that when you add HLA-B27 to the story of enteropathic arthritis, you can separate out enteropathic arthritis even more. Because HLA-B27, if you have that genotype, you're more likely to get spine and sacroiliac joint involvement. And that tends to be more severe in patients with enteropathic arthritis. Oh. Do you understand that, Jill? Yeah. There is a connection. But what the connection is that B27 points to the spine and the sacroiliac joints. So you can have Crohn's or you can have ulcerative colitis and have peripheral arthritis. But if you also have HLA-B27, you're more likely to have a more severe form and it can affect the spine and the sacroiliac joints. 
So some people with Crohn's disease have a disease that looks like ankylosing spondylitis alongside of it or with it because they have more likely they have HLA B27. Interesting. So was the study prompted and maybe you don't want to answer it, but the way I see it is, so for 50 years, we've seen that there is a connection. We created this, we created enteropathic uh, arthritis and there's still a significant disconnect in the treatment for people or in the diagnosis and treatment. Yes. Now let's go back historically to one other thing that I told you. Remember I told you about World War II and those patients that got dysentery and then developed arthritis following the dysentery? Yep. Well, guess what? When those patients were later uncovered after the 1970s and B27 was discovered, the ones that had long-standing disease that affected their spine and crippling some of their other joints, they were found to be B27 positive. So if you have B27, you are at risk for having a trigger as an infection, okay, to cause severe spine disease. Not everybody gets this. Not everybody, even with B27, but you are at risk. So okay. did some of what led to the uh, the findings around World War II, was it Jesse, uh, what is her name? She did a, a study for SAA or the SAA. It did a study at the VA. Yeah. Did that shed any light on anything related to the IBD spa no. connection? Okay. Her, 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 um, her hypothesis had to do with HLA-B27 and mortality. Gotcha. Okay. But that would be fascinating. Anyway, okay, back to your study. So how do we want to land this? Because I know we can't re reduce it. When you do, get, when you do uh, publish results, we'd love to have you and some of the others back on to talk about it again. But uh, what is there anything else you can share with us? Well, I think the important thing about our study was that it, it recognized a serious unmet need in the patients with having, that have inflammatory bowel disease. Their complaints are usually transient. Their complaints may be severe in terms of a symptom, but the signs are not as potent or strong. And so it's often missed. And it could be missed by rheumatologists. But if it's going to be missed by rheumatologists, it's surely going to be missed by gastroenterologists, right? Yeah. So, okay. so, so there are, there, there's a goodly number of patients with bowel, inflammatory bowel disease that have arthritis that causes difficulties for them and that needs to be recognized as such and managed as such. Now, management is complicated because the most people think, and I agree, that the bowel disease takes precedence. Why? Because bowel disease, if it's not managed properly, can cause perforation, abscesses, 
and loss of the intestine and death. It always seems to take precedence because of those factors. So aggressive treatment of the bowel disease most often, most often will manage the extra intestinal manifestations such as arthritis and tendonitis and so forth. Most often will do that. However, there are cases, and these are people, some of them have B27, where they have this superimposed spine involvement. That's usually not affected by treatment of the Crohn's or the inflammatory bowel disease. And so a complicated dance needs to take place between the rheumatologist and the gastroenterologist as to what you're actually treating. So would an ideal outcome be that if you are someone who sees a gastro and you are at risk for enteropathic or enteropathic arthritis, that standard protocol becomes that there is a rheumatological involvement? Yes. I would drink to that. <laughs> um, yes, I think so. I think the gastroenterologists um, have their hands full in what they're doing. Sure. They need help from the rheumatologists diagnosing, mostly diagnosing, and, uh, and to a lesser extent treating, because they know what the treating options are for, their, for the gut, and they're well aware of the impact of these gut treatments on, on some of the joint complaints. They, they seem to be aware of it also, okay? And, uh, and so we, uh, when we did our study, we just felt that we need more awareness. We need the patients to be aware. And we need the patients to push their gastroenterologists a bit to diagnose and manage their joint complaints either alone or in consultation with the rheumatologist. And in fact, there are beginning burgeoning clinic, combined clinics of gastroenterologists and rheumatologists to manage patients simultaneously. I love it. That is, that sounds like an excellent solution. Um, let's kind of wrap on this. So we've established diagnosis is probably the hardest part in the journey. Yes. Uh, once someone is diagnosed as enteropathic, I think you said this means that generally they get the right medication and there is an improved quality of life outcome. Yes, because the medications... The, the new biologic drugs, the new biologic, either the injectables or even now the new oral biologic drugs will tend to manage both simultaneously. There are some nuances and that's very much patient dependent. Okay. Okay. 
and I, you know, I can't really discuss that now. You have to, we have to talk about individual cases, but th those patients really do need to be seen in, uh, in combination by both gastroenterologists and rheumatologists. Okay. And then patients themselves, what are the, again, general, not individual, but what are the things that patients can do to manage the condition for a better outcome, like diet or similar I, to, yeah. So similar. to bring the joint complaints, whether they're in the spine or the peripheral joints to the attention of the gastroenterologist that they see. Okay. To me, that's, that's the key is, is advocacy for the patients to be aware and to be more aware of the very strong, not 100% by any means, but the strong connection between these two things and bring it to the attention of their uh, gastroenterologist. And likewise, if they're seeing only a rheumatologist and they have intestinal complaints, could they have simultaneous inflammatory bowel disease. And do you think another piece is education of the general practitioners? Um, not, as, not as important as education of the rheumatologists and gastroenterologists. Okay. There's plenty of them around. Gotcha. Okay, good. So I, I'm going to land on that note for today, but I would absolutely love it. Will, will you join us once the results are published? Sure. That would be great. And we can dig into a little bit more here and maybe have, yeah, this, because it's fascinating. I think from the stories I've heard and personal experience, this is an area that needs deeply researched. It's, it's, uh, not, it's not obvious to either the patients or the physicians what's going on. And that's why you need to get consultation and expertise. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, I am going to thank you for joining us. And once again, thank you for a multiple lifetimes of commitment to the advancement of rheumatology. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you, and I'm really looking forward to having you again. Thanks, Joe. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.